Thank you all for singing out. I love that. It encourages my heart just to hear God's people fill the room with their voices praising the Lord. Um, Take your Bibles. Go ahead and turn them with me to Joshua chapter 4. We are in Joshua chapter 4. I wonder if you would regard yourself as a nostalgic person. I'm sure that some of you would. You know what nostalgia is, right? Uh, it's a longful remembering of the past where we look back on days gone by and we view them as the good old days. Uh, some of you may feel that way about your, your childhood where you just remember back to those childhood days of innocent bliss. Uh, others may have nostalgia about college and you look back on those times where you didn't have all of uh, the burdens and responsibilities and troubles that you have now. I'm a child of the 80s. I love 80s music, and that music can bring a sense of nostalgia to a time that just seemed simpler and easier than the troubled times that our culture faces today. There's, there's one song that, that tugs at me sometimes by, by Eddie Money. Some of you older folks may have, uh, have heard of him. Uh, he, he wasn't as big as Michael Jackson or, or Prince. He was a kind of a smaller time artist. He had a few hits and he played the saxophone really well. And, and he had a song called, I Want to Go Back. And uh, in the song and in the video, he, he wistfully looks back to the past, to, to high school, and, and he reflects on the, on the good times and, and, uh, and the, the experience that he, that he had. And, and he says in the song, I was listening to the radio. I heard a song reminded me of long ago. Back then, I thought that things were never going to change. It, it used to be that I never had to feel the pain. I know that things will never be the same now. I want to go back. Do it all over again, but I can't go back, I know. I want to go back because I'm feeling so much older. Some of you know exactly what that feels like, but I can't go back, I know. Now that really captures a nostalgic remembering of the past. In essence, nostalgia is, is really a romanticizing of the past, where you overemphasize that which seemed good, and you minimize that which seemed bad. So, and so what you are remembering really is not truly an accurate picture. The 80s was not a paradise. There were lots of problems in our country and in our world and in my life personally. But nevertheless, we look back on the past and we, we call them the good old days. And the implications is that those were the best days, and the best days are gone, and it'll never be better. And so, nostalgia, this kind of remembering, has, often has a sad tinge to it. Now, the Bible has quite a bit to say about remembering the past. The people of God are often exhorted to, to not forget. But there's a big difference between the Bible's command for us to remember and mere nostalgia. Uh, the kind of remembrance that God is calling you to is not about reliving your childhood or, or wishing you could go back to those carefree days of college, and it's certainly not a kind of remembering that leads to complaining about the present, how these days are just so much worse than, than the good old days. And, and it's, it's not a kind of remembrance that leads to hopelessness about the future where, when we think that, well, it's just never going to get that good again. Instead, biblical remembering has nothing to do with taking you back to the past and trying to live there. Instead, remembering points you to God in such a way where you are equipped and encouraged to live successfully in the present while preparing you for the future. And that's exactly what we see happening here in Joshua chapter 4. And we have been, for these past three chapters, anticipating God's fulfillment of His promises to the nation of Israel, that after rescuing them out of brutal oppression and, and slavery in the land of Egypt, He would bring them into the land of Canaan, a land that could be their own, where they could dwell in peace and safety and prosperity and rest, enjoying God's presence and God's blessing among them. And after a long 40-year trek through the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, they took the scenic route. After all of that time, we, we, we found Israel gazing forward to the land that they were finally about to inherit. But in between them and the land was the deep, violent, raging River Jordan, a barrier that was insurmountable for a nation of, of well over a million people, maybe even two million people, uh, to cross that river in their own power and strength 
would have resulted in an absolute disaster for Israel. They are as utterly helpless as they can be, and so that means they are right where God wants them. We saw last week in chapter 3 how Joshua, under God's direction, commanded the Levitical priests to take the Ark of the Covenant, to lift that Ark up, and that Ark was a, a symbol of the presence of God and God's covenant commitment to Israel, and they were to march into the river with all of Israel watching, and as soon as their feet touched the water, the, the waters miraculously parted, and so God cut a path through the insurmountable river. And all of Israel crosses over to the other side of the Jordan on dry ground. But surprisingly, though Israel is is now in Canaan, they are still not ready to possess the land. They're still not ready to do battle against their enemies in the land. When they get to the other side, God's first command is not rush into battle. Instead, His first command is build a memorial. Because they still have another lesson to learn. It's not a lesson about war, but about remembrance. And it has everything to do, however, with the warfare that they will face. And so we'll read more about this right now. You can stand with me out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our God. And as we get ready to read this in Joshua 4, I do want to just briefly uh, uh, point out uh, uh, verse 9, bring that to your attention. We're not going to really dive into this during the, the sermon, but a straightforward reading of verse 9. It makes it seem like there are actually two memorials. <clears throat> so there's, there's one that's going to be on the banks of the Jordan. There's one actually that's going to be in the Jordan. However, uh, commentators disagree on whether that's the case. Uh, in the Hebrew, there is some ambiguity as far as how this is to be read. It could be that Joshua had initially set up some stones in the middle of the river during the crossing, then had men take those stones and place them on the, uh, on the other side of the Jordan. But really, however you want to read that, it doesn't, it doesn't change the the, the message uh, of, of, and your interpretation of this passage. So I just wanted to point that out so that wasn't distracting you and you had questions about that. You can research that more on your own. Joshua chapter 4. Let's read the whole chapter. God's Word says, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in the time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan and the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priest passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them, about 40,000 ready for war, passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they stood in awe of Moses all of the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. 
And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy and inspired word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to see, perceive, and understand the message that you have for us, for your people, this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It is interesting, you see in verse 19 there, it says that the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the, of the first month. Uh, that's, uh, that's Passover time. Uh, 40 years to, to the day when, when, when God revealed the, the, the feast of Passover to the people as the people were getting ready to, to go out of Egypt. So we've, we've come full circle here. What a, what a great moment this would have been for Israel. So Joshua <coughs> chapter 4, <coughs> excuse me, is, is helpful uh, to God's people then, and it's helpful to God's people now as it helps us to build a theology of remembering. And the first thing that we learn from this passage, one of the things we can take away is that we are to remember for our own good. We are to remember for our own good. By the way, go ahead and put up that map, Ethan, and put up that map, and uh, just to, again, uh, get, our, get our bearings here. And so, they were encamped at Shittim, there's the river Jordan, and now they are at Gilgal. Adam was the city where the, <laughs> the waters were all backed up. Uh, uh, in this area, that's about 18 miles north of uh, where, they, where they crossed over. So now this, this is Gilgal. And Gilgal is going to end up, I, I guess you could say, being like a, a base of operations uh, for Israel through their campaign. They'll keep coming back to, uh, to Gilgal in the future. All right, so we're to remember, we're to remember for our own good. One thing that is repeated uh, over and over in Joshua chapter 3 and 4 is this stone memorial that Israel is to set up on the west side of the Jordan. The word memorial, of course, is related to the word memory or remembrance. That's the purpose for this pile of stones to be set up on the, on the banks of the river. Uh, between chapters 3 and 4, the author alludes to this memorial in one way or another over half a dozen times. You know, he could have just mentioned this once, but, but he keeps repeating it. He, he keeps bringing our focus back to this. Uh, one reason, I think, is to emphasize the unity of the people. All 12 tribes are brought across the river through the power of God. N- uh, none is left out. Even the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh are mentioned in verse 12. That's very important uh, because those tribes had wanted to settle on the east side of Jordan, uh, not in Canaan, and yet they did pledge, Moses made them pledge, they did pledge to go over the Jordan with their brothers to fight on their side and help them take the land. So so there is this emphasis emphasis on unity. We've got not 11 stones, we've got 12 stones. God has done this for all the people. He's working through a united people. But the main purpose of the authors shining a spotlight on, on this memorial is to emphasize the importance of Israel's remembrance. They are to remember to not forget. And his continual repetition of these stones in this story is like the author stepping out of the pages of the story and turning to you and telling you to remember to not forget. Now, the priority of remembering is not just seen here in Joshua. We find it throughout the Bible. Uh, And so, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses exhorts the people, saying, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, David, in Psalm 103, sings, bless the Lord and forget not all His benefits. In Psalm 105, we're told to remember the wondrous works that He has done. Here's a good one for you young people. This is in Ecclesiastes. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Kids, teenagers, uh, young people, the time to remember God isn't 50 years from now, but today, right now, 
in this moment. And notice these calls to remembrance aren't calls to indulge in a, in a sad, longing nostalgia where you embellish on your own personal glory days long ago. It's a God-centered remembrance. Now, now what does it mean to remember God? Well, of course, it's not merely nostalgia, and it's not also a mere recollection of raw data, of information, of facts. Asaph in Psalm 77 helps us to understand the kind of remembering that the Scriptures are calling you to. He writes, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. So, not only are we to meditate on the Word of God, as we learned in Joshua chapter 1, but we also are to meditate on the works of God, the wonders of God, the deeds of God, His actions in redemptive history. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, meditation is not a passive thing. It's not emptying your mind of thought. That's the kind of meditation you see in Eastern religions. Biblical meditation is an active thing. It's It's filling your mind with the things of God, and it's more than just recalling the data of what God has done, but to think deeply on it, to ponder it, to consider its meaning, and to consider its application for your life. One commentator explains it this way, that the notion of remembering in Hebrew is more than a calling to mind. Uh, It involves a remembering with concern. It also implies living reflection, and we're called for a corresponding degree of action. And of course, you can remember in that way anytime and anywhere, but because of how God has designed us, a visual memorial, something that our senses can interact with, can really help us to remember in that powerful kind of way. For example, I grew up in, uh, in Washington, D.C., Uh, Some of you are saying, oh, I'm sorry, Deemer. Well, you wouldn't want to live there, but it's a nice place to visit. And one of my favorite things about D.C. uh, was the National Mall. I I would go as a young boy and, and, and ride my bike there all the time to this wonderful, incredible park. And you've got on one end the Capitol building. And if you turn around with your back facing the Capitol, you'll see on the other end the Washington Monument. Uh, in between that, on your left and on your right, are the Smithsonian Museums. You've got the, the Air and Space Museum on your right with all the airplanes and, the, and, and, uh, and, and space information and those sorts of things. And then you've got the Museum of Natural History and Art, which was uh, a close second as far as my, my favorite museum. Uh, past the Washington Monuments, the White House, beyond that is the Uh, Beyond the Washington Monument, you've got the World War II Memorial. Uh, Then behind that, perhaps my favorite building, uh, the Lincoln Memorial with that imposing statue within. And if you go at nighttime where there's less hustle and bustle, less crowds, uh, and and you go to like that Lincoln Memorial, it's just a very incredible, moving, weighty experience. So what's the purpose of all of that? the National Mall with all of its memorials and statues and plaques and iconic buildings laid out the way that it is. Surely the purpose is not so that you would merely just recall a bunch of facts. A history textbook could do that for you. Instead, the things in that park are designed as they are to connect you to the past and to actually stir up in you deep thought and reflection and appreciation. And if you have any love for history and for this country, you can't walk away without being stirred and impacted to some degree. That's what memorials are designed to do, to help you to remember in that kind of way. And so God has Joshua construct this memorial of 12 stones, uh, a monument that one can see, that one can touch with his own hands, with the purpose of connecting Israel with the great deeds of God in the past so that they might remember for their own good, for their own benefit. Because the greatest enemy of faith, both then and now, is forgetfulness. Just like in a marriage, the real threat may not be 
infidelity as much as it is failing to remember the preciousness of your husband or wife, so it is in our relationship with God that the pathway to a compromised relationship with God begins with forgetfulness. We are a forgetful people. There were two great dangers that could cause Israel to forget God. One would be their fear of the Canaanites, uh, who were bigger and stronger and mightier warriors than them. It's why Israel refused to enter into Canaan in the first place 40 years ago. They were chicken. They were scared of them. And so now, these temptations to fear could easily creep in again to the point where they fear the Canaanite warlords more than they fear God. And the thing that you fear the most is the thing that in the end will control and dominate your life. Some of you here battle fear and anxiety on a regular basis, and you know what I'm talking about. Uh, It could be fear of certain people in your life, fear of certain situations, fear of sickness, fear of not having enough money. A fear of not being popular or or well-liked. A a fear maybe of being ridiculed for your faith. A a fear of failure. And you become more consumed with the things that you fear than with God. And when that happens, what then is the controlling principle in your life? Is the controlling principle God and His Word and His promises? No, you are instead controlled by the thing that you fear. And for Israel, that means that if they lose their fear of God, they will be more interested in turning backwards or in appeasing the Canaanites. They'll be more interested in those things than in obeying God. To lose your fear of God always, always brings about disobedience. And yet this memorial of stones will help them to remember not to forget God and will give them assurance that they will succeed in their mission. In fact, if you look back at chapter 3, verse 10, you'll see this is essentially Joshua's commentary on why God got Israel across the Jordan in this way in the first place. Joshua said that this is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites. The miracle at the Jordan River gave assurance to the people of God's presence that God was actually with them, and it gave them assurance of God's power. And so if, if the Lord has mastery over a raging river that is standing in your way, he has mastery over all of the enemies that stand in your way. If this God is on your side, if this God is for you, then whom shall you fear? Only God and nothing else. This is exactly what Moses was getting at in his farewell sermon to Israel. That he said, he said this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you say in your hearts, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You see, Moses knew that this was going to happen. This was going to be a temptation. Then Moses says, if you say that, you shall not be afraid of them. But what are you going to do instead? He says, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. Why are you going to remember that? So, so will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. You shall not be afraid, uh, not in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst a great and awesome God. So again, the idea is that remembering the Lord's presence among them and His great deeds for them would diminish the fear in their hearts towards their enemies. And so whenever these Israelites return to to Gilgal, their their base of operations, uh, whenever between battles they would come back here to this place and see those memorial stones, those stones would bring to remembrance this mighty miracle. Uh, And again, this is not a, a nostalgic kind of memory where they're just living in the good old days of the past, but this remembering is gonna stir up a fear in their hearts. That, that, that's going to fortify them for the future. Now, to fear God means to consider Him with great awe and reverence, to regard Him as higher than anything else. It, it means uh, to fear God is to, is to have a, a fierce love and allegiance of God towards God stirred up in your heart. And as their fear of God grew and as their fear of their enemies shrank, they would find strength and courage the strength and courage they needed to move forward into the victory that God had for them. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 24, 
the people are plainly told that the purpose of this great work of God at the Jordan River is so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So if you're struggling with fear in your own life, you know what that means? It means that you're forgetting God's presence and power in your life. And as with Israel, so it is with you, the way to fight fear is with fear. You, you fight the fear of other things with the fear of God. So the psalmist says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. He is not afraid of bad news. Are you like that? When, when is the next shoe going to drop? When's the next bad thing going to happen? Things have been good for a while. Something bad's coming now. I, I know it. To disturb my peace. If you're like that, if you're paranoid like that, it means you're not fearing the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. So I want to encourage you this morning to remember God. And not just recall facts about God to your mind. You all are church people. You, you know how to do that. You know all the right answers. It's not about just recalling facts. It's about considering his deeds. Uh, comb the passages of Scripture and ponder the things that, that he does for his people. Contemplate what he's done in your own life. Meditate on these things so that you might fear God and nothing else. Now, in addition to the fear of the Canaanites, there was a second thing that could cause Israel to forget God, and perhaps in some ways this was a more dangerous thing, and that was the prosperity that they were to enjoy in the land after they conquered the, the Canaanites. And again, Moses foresees this temptation, and so he tells the people in Deuteronomy 8, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I commanded you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And that, that's lifted up in pride. Your heart, may, your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. I've done this thing. In other words, it's not just difficult times facing ferocious obstacles and enemies that could cause you to forget God, but also good times, easy times, prosperous times. And Moses warns them that when they have success... If they are not careful to remember, they will arrogantly think that they have accomplished all of this, and they will not fear, feel their need for God, and they will abandon God and fall into disobedience. But any Israelite who would see this memorial, as they would run their fingers over the stones, stones that used to be underwater... As they beheld that memorial, thinking and pondering and meditating on its meaning, he would remember that without God, they were utterly powerless and helpless. They wouldn't even be standing in Canaan, let alone dwelling in it. And that sense of helplessness would cultivate a, a healthy fear and reverence for God, a, a fervent devotion for the Lord that would guard them from a spiritually suicidal sense of self-sufficiency. You and I are in danger of the same kind of temptation. That's, that's why we should echo the prayer of the writer of Proverbs 30 who said, Do not give me riches, God. Uh, have you ever prayed that? That's a weird prayer. That's a very un-American prayer. He says, Do not give me riches, God. Why? Lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Instead, we should pray that God would keep us in a humble position so that we will remember our need for Him, that we would remember that great truth that Jesus told His disciples when He said, apart from me, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we are to remember for our own good, but also we are to remember for the good of our children. 
As each Israelite is called to remember the mighty work of God, it's not just for their own personal benefit. Instead, the parents are to remember for the sake of passing the wonders of God on to the next generation. In verses 6 and 7, and then again in verses 21 through 23, Joshua anticipates the inquiring minds of the children of the people. Some of you have kids, and you know what it's like to have be asked questions all the time. Mom, why, why is this happening? Mom, what is that? Dad, why is this? And then you say, well, it's this way because of that. And then they say, why? And then you say, well, it's because of that. And then they say, why? And, and you could, they could actually do this for hours if you let them. Their kids are very, very inquisitive, and, and Joshua anticipates this. He anticipates the children asking, well, what do these stones mean? And Joshua says, tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Tell them that Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. Now, of course, then the child might say, well, why? (laughs) Well, that would present a wonderful opportunity to the fathers to talk more about God's redemptive purposes and plans. So I can almost envision many years after the conquest, an Israelite father and son taking a walk through Gilgal National Park. And they come upon the pile of stones, and the son asks, what is this all about? And, And that just becomes a wonderful occasion for the father to tell the boy how great the Lord is and how it was God who got them on this side of the Jordan through his great power. And, and why? To what end? Again, I take you back to the end of verse 24, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. That's the purpose of all this. The fathers were to keep the memory of what God had done alive and burning in the collective consciousness of the next generation so that their children too would fear the Lord for their own good. They were to pass down a godly heritage. Moses says to uh, Israel in Deuteronomy 4, only take care and keep your soul diligently. In other words, guard your heart, Guard, guard your soul lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, make them known to your children and your children's children. So the parents are to be careful to remember, not just for their own sake, but for the following generations. I like how the psalmist describes this process in Psalm 145. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Uh, That word commend can be translated praise. So David here isn't describing a dry and boring transmission of facts to your children. Instead, this is celebratory language. Uh, One commentator describes it as an exuberant and passionate and joyful communication of God's deeds from one generation to another. But of course, that can only happen if the hearts of the parents are truly captivated by God. You can't fake this. Uh, this can only happen if, if the hearts of the parents are passionate and joyful as they remember what God has done. And so for parents in this room, that begs the question, what kind of heritage, what kind of legacy will you pass on to your children? Will it be a godly legacy? What are the, what are the things that are captivating your heart? Well, those are the things that will shape the legacy that you pass on to your kids. Let me, let me ask it this way. What will your kids remember most about you when they, when they are older? Will they remember your face practically glued to a screen looking at the news? Or trivial entertainment or endlessly scrolling through social media? Will your heritage be mean and unkind words to your children? Not words about God, but words that tear down. Will your heritage be them seeing that you fear something else other than God? You see, you may intend to pass on a godly legacy. You may want to pass on a godly legacy to your children, but what they in the end remember most about you is going to shape what that legacy is. And I don't know about you, But for me, that's a very sobering thing because there are things that I've said and done in the seeing and hearing of my kids that I'd rather they forget. So parents, let's let Joshua 4 challenge us in the present 
by asking ourselves, uh, what are we doing to preserve the memory of God in the hearts of our kids? Are you sharing with them the great deeds of God? Uh, you may say, well, well, I haven't seen anything like rivers parting. <laughs> you know what? Most people don't. Uh, if those sorts of miracles were common, we wouldn't need memorials, would we? If those things were happening every day. But during those amazing, unusual outbreaks of God's power, God's people are to remember them and to pass them on. In fact, that, that's what the Bible is. It, it's, a, it, it's a record of the mighty acts that God has done. So, it, it is part of your spreading the, the knowledge of the mighty deeds of God. It's part of that reading the Word of God to them. Do you do that? Or, or, or reading it with them? This, this incredible book is a tremendous witness and record of the wonders of God. If you need help in knowing how to, to transmit the, uh, with, with passion and joy and remembering in the right way to, to, to pass on the truths of God to the next generation, if, if you want to know how to do that, how to, how to lead your family in the things of God, we, we've got great resources in the bookstall in the back that can help you. Uh, one, one of my favorite resources, I talk about it a lot, it's called Long Story Short. This is the last copy that we have, so there might be a rush for it at the, at the end of the, of the message. And so, Marietta, you're going to need to order more of these. This is a popular one. You can take your child through the entire uh, Old Testament, and, and it really helps you to do that. Um, and, and you and your kids, as you're going through the Old Testament, you can remember the great works of God. Uh, you can do that around the dinner table or maybe with them before bedtime. In fact, they've come out with a sequel as well that does the same thing for the New Testament. There's other great uh, resources uh, that we've got back there as well that can help you. I, I love sharing missionary stories with my kids. Uh, this series here, I love this series, Christian Heroes Then and Now. Christian heroes then and now. This is awesome, I, and, and I know it's written with kids in mind, but boy, I get into these. I, I dive into these. I, I love this stuff. And uh, this one here is on Eric Liddell, uh, Chariots of Fire, the guy who like, you know, ran around the track and, and the Olympics and did really good. There's more to the story than that. There's more to the story than that. He loves God. He loved God. Well, he still does in heaven. And he also became a missionary. And you can get the whole story, the rest of the story, here in this book. There, there's many more. They, they produce tons of these books. They're really well done. They're not boring. Uh, I know in our family, we, we've done this one. Uh, we've done uh, Hudson Taylor, <clears throat> Nate Saint, George Mueller, Amy Carmichael, David Livingston, others. Uh, of course, missionary stories are not the Bible. And even the best of missionaries are not perfect. You learn that in these books. But these stories do demonstrate how God, even after the timeline of the Bible, how, how God, through history, has continued to act in incredible and powerful ways through the lives of these Christian heroes. Do you, do you, do you talk to your children about how the Lord has worked in your own life? Uh, maybe he hasn't split rivers for you lately, but has he done great things for you? Has he, has he shown you his great faithfulness? Has he protected you and provided for you? Have you shared your testimony with your children and talked about how God miraculously saved you? That's the greatest miracle of all. Have you shared with them the gospel, the message of salvation, which highlights God's greatest deed ever through the death and resurrection of Christ to save sinners from punishment, to give them eternal life. That's way better than splitting a river. You know, the whole reason you're a Christian is because someone told you the story. Some of you, that was your parents. But someone told you the story. Someone shared with you the wondrous deeds of God. Faith comes by hearing. You heard it from someone, and that person who told you heard it from someone else, and that person heard it from somebody else, going back 2,000 years to 11 men who heard it directly from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. And parents are on the front lines of this great gospel work of handing the truths of God off to the next generation. The main responsibility is not with church programs or a youth pastor or Sunday school classes. 
Now, we at Harbin's enthusiastically offer programs and Bible studies as a, as a means of supporting the evangelistic and disciple, discipleship work of moms and dads teaching their children. And I'm so grateful for our Sunday school teachers that are pouring their lives into the kids of this church. I'm glad I have other adults in this church investing in my kids and amplifying the message that I'm teaching them at home. But we parents are on the front lines. And the greatest burden is on the fathers, the heads of the homes. Notice in verse 21, Joshua says, when the children ask their fathers, there is an expectation that believing fathers would have spiritual leadership in their homes. Moms are very important too. But the Bible does place an additional weight and responsibility on the husbands and the fathers. And I hope, men, that your wives are not frustrated with you because you are passive and you refuse to take spiritual leadership in the home. Some guys really struggle with that. If you don't know how to do that, guys, or, 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 or what that looks like, reach out to some other godly brothers in this church. Learn from other men. Go through a, a book on godly headship together. I can assist you in finding helpful resources on that front. If you're a single mom or if your husband is not a believer, God will equip you in all kinds of ways to pass on the truth of God to your children. God is a father to the fatherless And God has put you in a church with godly men whom your children can learn from. So take advantage of that resource. Get to know some other families in this church. Invite them into your life so that you're not walking the path of parenthood alone. But regardless of whether you're a father or a mother, Joshua 4 should stir you up and even convict you where need be in regards to remembering the Lord, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of your children. I love how Asaph describes the weighty responsibility and privilege of parents in Psalm 78. He says, we will not hide from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So may we, the parents at Harbin's Church, and all the adults in the congregation, married or single, who have influence on the next generation… May we all be faithful in passing the torch of faith on to the next generation so that they too might set their hope in God. So, we are to remember for our own good, we are to remember for the good of our children, and we are to remember for the good of the world. I want, you, I want us to, again, focus our attention on verse 24 and the fact that God has done this great deed And Israel is to remember this great deed, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So that all the peoples of the earth may know, Joshua says. And that knowledge of God would induce fear in the nations. And there's two kinds of responses to that fear. We see one type of response to to fear in the next chapter. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And that kind of fear would lead them to try to fight back against God, because they wanted to be lords and masters of their own lives, because they wanted to remain in their sin and in their rebellion. It's a kind of fear that leads to a running from God. But God's desire is that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that that purpose also has a, a saving purpose. And we've already seen that with the Canaanite woman Rahab in chapter 2. She is to be contrasted with the kings of the Canaanites. When she meditated on the mighty acts of God, her fear did not repel her from God to fight against his his judgment against Canaan, but it instead led her to run to God for deliverance and salvation. Because God's desire was never to save Israel and destroy everyone else. His desire was never to hide himself among Israel but to instead go public 
and to spread his name and his fame worldwide to all peoples, to every tribe and tongue. And his intention was to use Israel as a means to do so. Hundreds of years before this event, when God first revealed to Abraham his intention of making a great nation out of his descendants, God told Abraham, through you, the peoples of the world would be blessed. And many years after Joshua chapter 4, when Israel had settled in the land, King Solomon praised this prayer when he dedicated the temple many years later. He says, when a foreigner who is not part, who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, this temple, here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. The idea is that the wondrous deeds of God would reach the ears of non-Israelites, which would stir up a fear of God in them that they might be drawn to the one true God. And this memorial, this pile of rocks on the banks of the Jordan, this memorial will in subsequent generations assist Israel in their mission. Future generations will see that memorial, which will cause them to remember. But But think about this, the memorial is not useful to anyone else apart from verbal explanations. There has to be proclamations. Proclamations to their children, proclamations to the nations. The stones will not evangelize for them. They must take what they remember of God and open up their mouths. And so the psalmist commands his fellow Israelites in Psalm 96 Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Peoples there doesn't mean other Jews, it means other nations, other tribes and tongues and ethnic groups and cultures of the world. And David says in Psalm chapter 9, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion, tell among the peoples his deeds. And Israel cannot do this if they do not remember, and neither can you or I. God has done great things for you and I, and he's done great things for the world. But the world will not know and will not come to him for salvation if we don't remember his great deeds and if we don't open our mouths about the things that we remember. So are you telling people about the deeds of God? Most important, the salvific deeds of God. That although you and I and the whole world has has been in sin and rebellion against God, and that we all deserve God's death penalty for our treason against Him, eternal hell, that nevertheless God so loved a sinful world that He came into this world as a man, as Jesus Christ, and He suffered and died on a cross, taking man's sin and man's punishment on Himself, suffering the very wrath of God on behalf of sinners, and being raised from the dead three days later, so that any sinner, any sinner that trust in him might have Jesus' payment for sins applied to them so that any sinner can escape death and receive eternal life. Is that not the greatest deed that God has ever done? Talk about the deeds of the Lord, the wonders of the Lord. Is that not the most wonderful thing? Will we remember that? And will we keep that memory to ourselves? Are you actively, are you, Harbin's Church, actively seeking to declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples? Am I doing that? Are you living with that sense of mission and purpose? Are you seeking to intentionally open your mouth among the nations, among your neighbors, so that they may fear God and be saved? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If you struggle with the discipline of evangelism, 
with telling, with telling of the great deeds of God through the, the gospel, could it be that you have a memory problem? Not that you've forgotten the facts of the gospel, but could it be that you have not been actively and deeply pondering and meditating on the gospel and the great work of salvation that God has done in your life to the point where it is gripping and captivating your heart once again? Perhaps your mind has become so full of lesser things, of entertaining yourself or, or fearing other things more than God, perhaps, and so, and so maybe you need help remembering. I know sometimes I do. And that's why I'm so glad that God has given you and I a memorial to help us to remember the great deeds of God. He has given us the Lord's Supper. He has given us communion as a powerful graphic sign that we can see and hear and taste and touch to engage our senses and to help us to meditate on and ponder the saving work of God in our lives. The bread we will eat reminds us of the flesh of Jesus that was pierced by nails and hung on the cross. The juice that we will drink points to the precious blood of Jesus that flowed from his body as he hung there, bearing the wrath for our sins. And this great memorial is meant as something to not just thoughtlessly do, but to experience as it leads you into deeper meditation and reflection on your great salvation. And so I've been praying that this time of communion would not just be just going through the motions. How many of us have done that before, doing communion? Come on, be honest. Going through the motions. We just walk up, we, do our, we take, take the bread, we take the juice, blah, blah, blah. Okay, on to lunch. But this memorial, I'm praying, would trigger something deep in your heart, giving you a greater appreciation for the saving work of God in your life, helping you to really remember Him, which in turn will help you to open your mouth and proclaim what He has done. Proclaiming it both to your children who may ask you about what this meal is and why we are partaking this, uh, but also proclaiming it to the world outside these church walls, to the, to the nations whom you are to declare, your, to declare God's glory to. If you're not a Christian, then I'm going to ask you that you not take the bread and cup, but, but don't leave. Instead, observe, think, ponder, pray that God might open your eyes to the truth so that you too might come to fear God 